Founded by activist Tarana Burke in 2006, the hashtag MeToo movement has been the focus of much analysis in both the academy as well as in popular culture. When something has such broad-reaching impact, there will be no single way to understand it or engage with it. Everyone has an opinion. How the movement shakes up Wall Street will be different than, say, Hollywood, professional sports, politics, and on our college campuses. On this latest episode of Office Hours with Dr. DeVoe, uh, I am joined by Dr. Ana Martinez Alamán and Dr. Susan Marine, co-authors of the new book, Voices of Campus Sexual Violence Activists, hashtag Me Too and Beyond, to unpack what was discovered through their research, including interviews with over 21 campus activists. What they found is current, extraordinarily relevant, and provides a clear picture of what activism looks like on our campuses today. Hope you enjoy this important interview. So this is how you spent COVID is writing this book. Is that what you did? Even yes and no. I mean, we started the project and then COVID hit. Right. And our assumption was that we were going to be interviewing folks personally, one-on-one. And so we had lots of conversations about funding and going where and that whole thing. I mean, I also want to make it clear that neither of us interviewed anyone from our campuses. So our campuses are not included in this, but then Mm -hmm. COVID hit and we had that little moment of sort of that, that research hold button being pressed and pressed hard Mm -hmm. and had to really think about, well, students are going to be going places. Some of them are going to go home. Some of them are going to just stay in their apartments. How are we going to get them? And then having, having to make the decision about, interviewing them virtually, which at way back when seemed yeah. to be odd to us as researchers because mm-hmm. we're not used to that. And then and I was I said, well, let's try it. And after the first one or two, I don't know how Susan felt about it, but I certainly felt like, oh, this is fine. Yeah. yeah. And it made it quite frankly easier logistically to get students to you know, figure out what, what their schedule was, et cetera. So, but, so the, the decision to do it virtually during COVID really was just let's pivot. But then in the end, it worked out to be really, really great. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Susan, when you were thinking about it, did it change how you kind of did interviews or how you've done some research than you have in the past? I think that most of the recent interview-based projects I've engaged in have been distant and recorded either orally over the phone or on Zoom. So I didn't find that to be too terribly different. I think for me, what was surprising was learning how much the activists were doing, even though they weren't on their Mm -hmm. campuses. And once we realized there was a really fertile ground of activism still happening, even though Mm -hmm. they were in most cases at home, we thought, let's keep going with this, because not only is it going to reveal to us their tenacity for what they're doing, but it's also going to show us probably some new approaches that they're engaging in from a distance. So, and as Anna said, we were pleasantly surprised. I think our first phone interview went well over an hour and we thought, okay, Okay, a lot here. So, Yeah, yeah. 
So what was the the kind of precipitating factor that you all decided to join in and this particular project? And Susan, why don't we start with you and then we'll go down. Sure. Yeah. So back in 2016, 17, I worked on a study with a former student, now colleague of mine, Ash Trebisacci, um, where we were interviewing campus activists about their motivations, strategies, et cetera, this being a long interest of mine from being a former campus advocate, um, okay. advocate and, and policy developer, et cetera. And Ash and I learned in that initial study some very interesting things about what motivated the students, what kept them engaged and going, and, and how they saw the work benefiting them, and in some cases, challenging them. And I think that Anna and I really wanted to pick up where that project left off. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the Me Too movement was picking up more and more steam with the very public events that were happening nationally out in Hollywood, et cetera. And we thought, I bet, I bet there's an interesting confluence here uh, yep. emerging. So that was kind of the impetus was to take the project forward to learn more about what the students were doing. And initially we thought that they would be keyed in and and would make a lot of reference to the influence of the Me Too movement. We didn't actually find that so much, but that was kind of our starting point. Yeah. I mean, I do want to underscore that Susan's initial work on it sort of set, set, not sort of, it did set the stage. And then she and I had a conversation where we both recognized that there's, there's been a lot of good, solid research on survivors. Could be a ton more, but there's certainly in the higher education student affairs space, we have a lot of good data. What we really know nothing about, or at that time knew very little about is, well, who's doing all this work on the student mm-hmm. side, right? And what's that about? And how many of them are survivors? How many of them aren't? And then why do they continue to do this? In the context of a highly politicized social climate around power and gender and sexuality, that in the end, actually, as as Susan noted, as is often the case with students, they surprised you. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, It was was in their sights, but not, it wasn't driving anything because the campus climate had, had been there anyway. And Me Too seemed to be much more about powerful, rich people, yes, in Hollywood and elsewhere. So So you asked your subject. So remind me how many people you interviewed for this. 21, I believe. 21. Individual folks. And we had many more that were initially involved and for various reasons we did not capture. Right. And and you so, did not pick students from your own campuses once again. No. I want to reiterate that. No. no, no, we we had a very, very good, I think, as Susan and Susan and I have worked together before. And I think one of the things that we do well is try to really set the foundation by really asking a lot of good questions about, you know, who are the who are the participants here going to be and how what's the best way to engage them with these questions. And clearly, it would have it would have created a vector, I guess, uh, mm-hmm. that we didn't want across our data and our perceptions if we had included our own campuses. Yeah. So that was certainly off the table. And then it became okay. Well, how are we going to, 
<laughs> as all social scientists do, okay, well, how are we going to get participants, right? And so we did what most people do is that they scour far and wide. We developed a very long list of student activists who were in the public domain. Mm-hmm. So everything from the New York Times to we decided to just sort of take a good scan of uh, college newspapers, for example. Yep. yep. Uh, and then we started to contact and then started to really sort of do the classic snowballing where those students would then say, oh, you might want to think about talking to these folks on our campus. Right. And we also wanted to get a fair distribution slash representation of institutional type, geographic location. Within institutional type, we were very, very committed to getting folks from HBCUs and we're relatively successful in that, but we are, we where I think we really struggled and did not, I think, succeed at is having a broader racial representation across participants. Mm -hmm. Uh, It wasn't that they were completely out, it was completely absent, but we, I, we weren't fully satisfied, I guess is the best way of putting it. And and Susan, when you were recruiting these folks and when you finally settled on the 21 folks that you did, mm-hmm. you asked them to to start to marinate on basically like four areas of focus. Can you talk a little bit more about those four areas and why you decided on those? And then and then I want to go into another question. Yeah, sure. So the kind of first area that we were really interested in mining with them was the idea of what motivated them. What were the various factors that served as an impetus to become involved in activism? We had some hunches about that, but I think we wanted to kind of delve into that a little further to see where that interest and and specifically where that long-term commitment was coming from. Because many of the, the participants we talked to, some of whom were current students, some of whom were alumni of their institutions, had been involved in these issues for for years. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we weren't talking to people, typically we weren't talking to people who are brand new in the activist space. So motivation, we were also interested in the strategies. How did they go about the work that they did? How did they make decisions about that work? How did they choose? Because time and energy and resources are all limited. So we were curious about that. We were very curious about with whom they collaborated and why and when, who they saw as allies and in some cases as antagonists to the mm-hmm. goals that they were trying to accomplish. We were also very interested in how participating in activism affected them for better or for worse, for their benefit and or at their personal cost. What did they gain from it and what did it cost them really to to engage and we wanted to know if they felt like it was worth it. Yeah. What were the outcomes? What What did you accomplish mm. through this work? So those were really our motivations. And of course, with each interview, we took the conversation where it needed to go because every everybody was doing the work a little bit differently. But those were the things that we thought as people who care deeply about addressing this topic more broadly, and that by that I mean working toward the elimination of sexual and harassment and violence. We wanted to know those things because we want to figure out how we work toward that goal together. So that's kind of where we went in our conversations. 
Absolutely. I, I think that the the question I have coming out of that is you didn't, you decided not to interview campus advocates, mm-hmm. but I think that to, in my mind, this book is well positioned to be marketed towards and hopefully something that campus advocates are going to want to read. Mm-hmm. In terms of surprises, is there something that may have surprised you from the interviews that you you did that Sometimes when you're sitting, and I'm going to take a step back to the administrative side of life, and when I was sitting in a vice presidential role, and you sit there and you've got these students coming into your office or into your space, and you, you kind of you're making a presumption sometimes about how things are going to go or what's going to happen, but there's always a surprise, and I think administrators since even from 2011 on with the Dear Colleague letter in 2011, it's always been about this, like, are we in compliance? How are we there? And there's a lot of administrators who are in this mindset of compliance versus care. And what about this book that either surprised you in terms of what the student said or may help an administrator move out of the the overly compliant side of life into a state of care that or or kind of jog that care muscle again? I'm wondering what your thoughts are about that. And um, Anna or or Susan, either. Yeah, I mean, I think we can both go at it, Um, you know, um, and I would like this book to go at it because I do think it's a critical piece of this project um i mean personally well as a as a research set of a as a research agenda one of the things that i certainly surprised us is that i i assumed and i suppose i'm not quite sure how, how how much susan assumed this but largely because i researched social media and undergraduates a lot that social media would be a central platform and means to engage in their activism because it's generationally true, right? And that just wasn't the case. Having said that, it is very, very true that they engage in lots of communications that are virtual in the sense that so they would group me, they would Slack, they would use apps that ostensibly our social media, but we just don't think of it that way. So mm-hmm. I think that was surprising mm-hmm. I, just as a researcher. I I would say that I wasn't surprised at, well, I, I was surprised that we what we didn't have as a very robust sort of set of findings around the impact on students' classes or grades or things like that. Mm-hmm. There was some of that, but that wasn't, yeah. it didn't really like come out a lot mm-hmm. and thus what really came out was the psychic cost right the emotional mm-hmm. psychological cost to students student activists which didn't surprise me as a researcher and i felt as a researcher really really good about ha- hearing that come to the surface because it gets to this question of compliance right mm-hmm. because i think on the one hand, and certainly as somebody who's in that deanly space, can recognize and understand the need for institutions to comply, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But then as you're characterizing it, but it often means that you can't attend to the care of students. And I think mm-hmm. that's where everything fall, falls or fell flat for our activists, that mm-hmm. that kind of psychological cost Mm-hmm. That energy, that commitment, the ways in which they identified themselves as a consequence of it, the ways in which it informed their future after college, 
wasn't attended to. And I think mm. that's where that care piece for me, not surprising, but still the depth of it and the the edge that it had. I I I I heard that more often than not from our mm. activists, and it definitely was it, it was it was a sharp wound, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I I would concur. I think it unsurprising but deeply concerning the degree to which compliance culture has sort of subsumed everything in a way that um uh kind of reduces space for having larger questions about really important aspects of this problem which include campus culture, which include right. Investments in structures and systems and practices that we know there's no mm-hmm. longer any debate about the degree to which particular types of campus cultures perpetuate the problem, right? That, right. That's been right. well demonstrated. And yet we've kind of sidelined that conversation to go back to this sort of compliance focus. And I think one of the things that gets lost in that is that colleges and universities are very, very minimally involved in even even contributing to or dictating the terms of compliance. Right. When the Trump era, when when DeVos rolled back the protections in the Dear Colleague letters, Mm -hmm. colleges and universities, we rallied together and everybody participated in the public comment period literally none of the suggestions or concerns were addressed or included. Right, right, right. So right. It, it caused Anna and I to say, why are colleges taking back some of the power that they have, which is to actually think about what they need to do on their own campuses? Right. Because they, they're not going to have any say in what yeah. happens at the federal yeah. government level. Right. But they have a lot of say at what happens day to day, what cultures are perpetuated or promoted or not in their own, within their own walls. And I I think, I guess in a way I was surprised that colleges are sort of relinquishing all of the control over to the federal government, the Office of Civil Rights, rather than saying, what else do we need to be looking at here? Our students are crying out to pay attention to these things. And we're choosing instead to make spreadsheets. Right. Well, and I think that when you go back and, and you look at the kind of the timeline where all of this, mm-hmm. you know, we, we know there were Dear Colleague letters before 2011, but the one that yes. finally was the, the nail was the 2011 yes. letter. And I think that I've done several shows on this in various shapes and forms over time. And if you ever want someone great to talk about just the, the minutia of all of it, Beth Devonshire, I'm going to give her a big, big yeah. shout out. She's yeah. over at Wentworth now as one of the assistant general counsels, but I'm, I'm not going to mess up her title. She's a general counsel of some sh- shape or form. Okay. <laughs> but I think one of the things that has happened in, in my opinion, is that when you took away that idea of in the first kind of formulation of all of this, there was not only the side of this is how the process needs to work. The Title IX person can't be a person who does X, Y, Z. They need to only do ABC. And they right. can only report to this line. They can't report up through this line. I mean, there was a lot of can't, 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 blah, blah, yes. blah. So there was the lawyers came in and said, okay, let's worry about this compliance. Then there was another side of it, which was you had to do a campus climate survey. 
And that was part of the overarching. And I remember we were using whatever platforms we were using about drugs, alcohol, sexual assault, all that stuff about education. And our sexual assault platform came in and said, we already, we saw this coming. We have a climate survey. You can augment it. You can do this. It's going to be part of your thing and blah, blah, blah. And then when DeVos came in, that went away. Right. The That idea of climate went away. And climate goes to exactly what you were just talking about, Susan, is that the campus, this is what the campus can control is the climate. The campus can actually say, what are we going to do to modify the climate? How are we going to impact the climate? And as both of you said, we don't have a lot of control about compliance. Compliance is dictated to us. And and I, I do have a bias about certain compliance aspects of life when it comes to things like I was at a tiny college at the time and they're saying, you can't do this, you can't do this, you can't do this. I'm like, where the hell is this person supposed to work? We don't have right, a right. line of reporting right. for this person. <laughs> right. Okay. Right. So, and I, I got in trouble at a, at a yeah, I mean, event where I literally got up and yelled about it, but go ahead, Anna. Yeah. <laughs> no, I mean, I'm just going to punctuate the conversation by saying, I mean, I, we felt very, very strongly that the, this was effectively an abdication of the educational mission of our institutions. And that to me is just, I don't know. I just, that is the most uncomfortable place for us to be when our institutions completely ignore the educational mission that we have, take care of students in a variety of different ways in spite of or despite federal legislation. Uh, And we can Mm -hmm. point to a million examples of it that not just sexual violence. No, no. Unfortunately, but I mean, it, it was an indictment. It was a clear indictment. Yeah. On page 30, no, sorry, 59. You see, here's the problem. I'm looking at you on Zoom with my Zoom glasses where my reading glasses are different. So on the bottom of the page, it says, in sum, sexual, campus sexual violence activism is a prevailing experience that has a bearing upon activists' sense of self, their health, and their mental well-being. And I, I highlighted it. I started and I put a post-it note in that page. Mm-hmm. That really hit in terms of the message of this of this book. Talk to us more about when I read that that to you. What do you think that that is? Is that something that just came from the interviews, or is that where you two kind of compared notes and said, "This is we have lost." a real understanding of what is kind of the engine behind the students in these, these campus activist landscapes. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it, it really came, it came from the, the participants for us. Cause if you scroll right. up a little bit on that page, yeah. you've got Morgan talking about how, you know, it's a runner's high, but before you, before you go start to do the race, so to speak, you think you're going to die. Yeah. And then you get into a, you go, 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 go. And then you ha- you have this cycle that says a lot about how these activists and, and probably, obviously, those we didn't interview, think about it bearing upon who they are. Because they're, they're, they have to negotiate how it is that it is affecting them, what it means. And much like the metaphor of the runners, like... I know it's good for me. I know I feel better at the end. I know I'm committed to this. It tells me something about myself. 
and they engage in it at the at, at the point to the point of exhaustion, right? Mm. And then they kick it back in because somehow or another it has a bearing on who they understand themselves to be. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And it, it's a very purposeful, purposeful kind of moment for them as young adults. Mm-hmm. Um, Susan? I think, yeah, all of that. And, and I think, as we point out slightly earlier in that chapter, quite a few of the activists self-identified as survivors mm-hmm. and the, the historical origins of the, anti-sexual violence movement, whether on campus or anywhere else, at least in the United States, has been, you know, very much driven by and centered in the experiences of survivors, which is part of its strength, is that it is remains, I think, driven by and informed by that. I don't think we talk very much about, uh, as Anna sort of alluded to the cost of that, that we don't really have a good handle on what kinds of re-traumatization activists might be experiencing. We we know that they are because they talked about it in our interviews, yep. uh, but we don't talk very much about, is, is it even fair? Is it even ethically, morally defensible to ask people who've been directly impacted by an experience, a traumatizing experience to then take up the cause of, of its elimination and, and yet these these students are more than willing to do it over and over and over again. But but again, at what cost? And several in our yeah. study about taking time off. Some of them availed themselves of counseling, not all of them. Yeah. And they they definitely spoke to the fact that it wasn't they did it out of a deep commitment and a deep desire, but it wasn't without real compromise for them personally. Yeah. And they had a variety of different targets in the sense of where they they could bring all that stuff, right? For some of them, it was efficient, sort of the, the more serious counseling relationship yeah. with therapists. For others, it was their own group. For others, they channeled it into writing books and poetry. Mm-hmm. So they all had these avenues. I and mean, for some of them, it's, it's an opiate, right? Because mm-hmm. The activism itself, it's, it is the runner's high, right? You want it yeah. again and you do it again. So th- it is that opiate for them. So they, they all had a place to bring it for the most mm-hmm. part. Some didn't talk about it much, but we did hear the ways in which they <clears throat> brought that kind of anguish and anxiety and stress, et cetera somewhere yeah. and oftentimes it was with other activists i think there was a lot of group work that went on i think well, also I, I like to think about um uh v ensler who many years ago <coughs> when writing the vagina monologues posed the question what would you know in this case the reference was women what would women do with all the energy and time they spend fighting violence, what else could they do in the world? Yeah. yeah. I think we, we thought to ourselves, what else could one do in college, yeah. in, in their schooling, in their co-curriculars, in their leadership development, if they weren't putting hours and hours a week into essentially trying to reform their own campus cultures? Yeah. I mean, look, it, it's a, it's a, it's a correlate to the cultural taxation that Racial, racially minoritized students have mm-hmm. on predominant white campuses mm-hmm. that 
you always take a step for me it's always and this is also part of what attracted me to this project is I'm always thinking about well, what's the quality of students experiences right yeah like yeah yeah yeah, yeah. I'm sure a lot of them will graduate and blah blah blah, blah and we'll have all those data great somebody needs to mm-hmm. keep an eye on that but I'm always like it's great if you can graduate but boy if you had a really shitty time right what are we doing We've, we've got to think about the affinity. We've got to think about the connectedness. We've got to think about that quality of experience. Absolutely. Yeah. This is this is where we sometimes just the data set of how fast are they getting through and, and how many of them. I mean, we could, we yes. could just do it, but you got to make them like it. Uh, <laughs> we have to actually earn their life. Yeah, it has to be enjoyable. <laughs> it, has to, it has to have its peaks and valleys, all yeah. bad professors, great professors, great intramural, whatever, activity and bad roommates, good roommates. Yeah. But in the end, can you look back and say, wow, I would, I would do that again. Absolutely. The other, the other thing when in the book that I really was, was interested in is your thoughts on the intersectionality of their identity of as a, as an activist. And as that's part of their identity, I know that you said earlier, Anna, that you were hoping for maybe a more racially diverse population of people that you interviewed, but talk to me more about what that intersectionality of being an activist and, and other parts of their identity. I'm, I'm interested in that. Susan, why don't you start? Yeah, so we did, we did find that students had, that the participants were very thoughtful about the ways in which their multiple complex identities were impacting the work they were doing. So drawing on those experiences as minoritized in variety of ways, students of color, LGB, um, students of varying gender identities, students of varying class backgrounds, of ability levels, mm-hmm. and yep. many, of course, grappling with various kinds of disability in their college experience. Um, you know, they they brought all that into the work, but I think what struck us also was that they talked about it and they knew sort of the the impact of all of those movements in the work mm-hmm. as well. And this is where we were sort of, I think, pleasantly surprised to find that even if they hadn't taken a lot of coursework in intersectional theory, in in the technologies of social change or social activism work, they had the language, they had the understanding of how important it was to build coalition, to incorporate ideas from other movements into the work they were doing and and really also to to stay humble to stay open they talked about having really meaningful practices around collaboration around listening around dialogue around consensus building those are all things that were largely informed by their knowledge of other social justice movements and their decision to center those in their work, which we were both pleasantly surprised and delighted by because most of them weren't women's studies majors mm-hmm. or disability studies majors, but they were really conversant with these ideas and really committed to making sure that their activism reflected that. It was a generationally wonderful moment because <laughs> it was very clear to us that it, as, as, because Connor turned the, coined the term neo-activist in the sense that generationally they're situated there. Yeah. And they assume 99.9% of it, talk about it in a variety of different ways, 
oh, engage in coalition building too across mm-hmm. groups. So, you know, it wasn't it wasn't this sort of very myopic. Oh, only only quote unquote women are raped on campus, right? right? And yeah. only women have acts of sexual violence brought to them. So that was just a very ref- it was both refreshing and very telling that as we think about going forward into the next decade or so and thinking about student activism, that how we think about student activism has to shift generationally and and evolve. Mm -hmm. Lots of things are going to remain the same because things always do, but it's a different research language, I think, and a different research lens, which was awesome. Yeah, I I, th- I appreciate that idea of the generational shift in terms of activism. I I kind of do a very non-scientific summary of my observations around generational approaches to activism or rules and like how do people kind of attach themselves to rules. If you look at the boomers, they made the rules Gen X, which I'm a member of. We 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 don't care and we don't like Gen. We don't like the boomers because they're our parents, so we don't really. We're just not going to pay attention. We're going to make up our own. Then you've got the millennials who are rule followers. They know the rules. They're going to follow the rules. They may not like them, but they're going to say, all right, what do we got to do? And then Gen X, I mean, Gen Z has been this generation of, okay, I understand the rules, but I'm going to be rule adjacent. I'm going to tell you, I get the rules, but I'm also going to tell you why these rules don't work for me. And now I'm going to force you to, we're going to move these forward and make them better. And I think you kind of saw this, I think, the first time the the more more national eye on it was in the terrible tragedy in Parkland, Florida, when that group of of now now they're in their mid late twenties, but they were high school kids at the time, mm-hmm. and they made everyone see this through the lens of they were very very savvy about what they could do, what they could say, where they had access to to power and they had actual physical microphones and were able to be heard but they also i thought was very savvy of them to your to your point about this idea of like it's not only mass shootings in suburban affluent high schools where this is happening how many people a day in black and brown neighborhoods are right. being killed on a daily basis and they are literally brought that to people's attention and have activated their their voice around not shootings happen in a variety of ways and it's all of it's unacceptable and so i think it's really an interesting i think this this book is timely not only because of the conversation that you're having about the specific me too piece around sexual violence but there's also, I think campuses right now are grappling with how do you manage this activist culture in a way that you now have your Gen Xers and your, your, maybe your older millennials not able to kind of manage. They're right. having a generational kind right. of conflict over this. Right. What do you think that campus leadership may be able to learn from your observations and your research in this book? And when we start with, with Susan and then we'll go to Anna. One of the things that I hope people will be willing to reflect upon and perhaps revisit in their own work around this issue is just remembering that no one with a title and a salary drawn from a university spends any time in a fraternity party on a Friday night. 
and spends any time sitting in a dining hall listening to students talk about, grapple with, and formulate norms around behavior and consent and sex and all of those things. And it behooves us to remember that and stay humble to the fact that we think, we may think, we have the answers about what's needed around this issue, but we don't live their lives and we don't, we don't have access to their lived experience of their day-to-day cultures. Hmm. And our, the primary plea coming from the book is come back to the table with activists. Mm -hmm. Stop assuming that we have all the answers, that we know everything about this problem. And that's, I'm speaking to myself when I say that too, because I've been working in this movement for almost 30 years. Mm -hmm. I do not have the answers. And a big part of why is because I'm not living their lives. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, And I, I think it's really important that we don't forget how important their insights are, but also recognize that it is our, it is our responsibility as educators to treat addressing this problem as an educational endeavor alongside them and work together to create solutions. Laura, I'm now circling back to your original question. And one of the central reasons or key reasons that we had for engaging in this project was to bring the voices of these activisms to the fore. And I do think that's central to your question now is, and it is, and again, for me, I research college students. I am, I went to college in the dark ages. So, um, and it's very clear to me, and I remind myself of it all the time in my work that, okay, well, what are students saying? You may think that this is what, you know, but, and it, by the way, maybe half of what you think is still true, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but maybe only a quarter is, or maybe none of it is. And so you have to ask yourself that question as both someone who studies higher education and, and college students and college culture and college climate, but also somebody who's in it, who's yeah. in the university and, and doing that kind of work. I have a college junior and I like to ask him what's going on now. Unfortunately, the child does not rat anybody out, but whatever. <laughs> I, I, he, he is, he's involved. He's a, he's one of the lead young men in this, essentially this men's group, young men's group to talk about really the bottom line is toxic masculinity. Right. Yeah. And he says to me, he says, well, we're going to go on this retreat and this is where I'm going to bring this to them and blah, blah, blah. But you, you know about the box mom, right? The box and goes, yes, I do know about the mm-hmm. box dear. I've researched the box, but this idea of talking about masculinity for them, the way he's talking to me about it mm-hmm. has a, has the layer and the flavor and the seasoning of his mm-hmm. generational moment that at base has kind of sort of been around for a while, more than a while, but it's still how they understand themselves in the context of the now and quite frankly, they're influencers, right? Both Mm -hmm. for us, the influencers weren't online, but for them, they are online as well as not online. But, and I'm constantly reminded of that. And it's something that we all as both faculty, administrators, staff, parents with kids in college have to, and researchers, especially for me, like, right, what's the construct? How -hmm. is it still relevant? Mm Mm-hmm. And then make your peace with the fact that, oh, right. Yeah, I was wrong about that. 
Yeah. Yeah. I want to close out with a question about institutional betrayal. Mm. I'm going to be interviewing two folks next week and a few for a future show on issues that some research that has been done recently and, and lived experiences of black women, faculty who are being bullied in their work environment on campus and that environment. And one piece of research is specifically even notes institutional betrayal in that environment. Mm-hmm. And so I, I yep. think this concept of institutional betrayal it doesn't simply fit in one one problem area over another. They, it's right. it's all over the place. Yeah. And I I always say to people, and this is, we have to understand, and, and, and it, it has some relevancy here, is that a lot of our campuses end up with administrators who are alumni of that campus. And so they are mm. like living there. And I, and I, I joke with students who go off and say, oh, I got to get a job at my alma mater. Isn't that great? And I said, a little word of caution, going to could be an administrator at your alma mater is like going at a, a job at Disney World and finding out the guy in the Mickey Mouse suit is an asshole. I mean, it's like it's 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 not a great environment all the time. Yeah. So let's think about I want the last thing for us to talk about is this institutional betrayal, because it came through loud and clear through the book and yeah. how this the, these activists were feeling that the institution just wasn't there for them. And I, I want to give each of you a, a kind of a last word on institutional betrayal and what institutions need to kind of keep in mind from your research. So when we tar- start with uh, Anna and then go to Susan. If we think about the people in our lives, the, and more importantly, the relationships in our lives, where being betrayed by them is a very, very deep wound that takes many, many years to get over, if you can get over them at all, right? These wounds of betrayal. And these are relationships and institutions of higher education, in my view, often forget that we're fundamentally in a relationship and that relationship is a very vocational one with our students, as well as with our colleagues. I will extend it to our colleagues as well as in the daily space. I have that responsibility and obligation as well, but it is fundamentally to what we, fundamental to what we do to recognize that that is an obligation that I have to students mm-hmm. and to mortgage that out in some way I find really just hugely problematic and un- un- unethical in many ways so when institutions quote-unquote betray students <clears throat> they're really betraying that relationship and they're not engaging in in their end of the relationship and that for me is what that betrayal is about at its core we can pick at it on the edges and try to fix some processes and engage much more administratively and bureaucratically i just always come back down to what essentially is our commitment to students and i think that we haven't done great by it yeah Yeah, I co-sign all of that. And (laughs) I want to expand our thinking a little bit and encourage us to reflect on not just our individual institutions, but our profession. And I think because we're all student affairs folks in our core inner beings, whether we are now faculty or public intellectuals, Laura, I know you're both now or many other things in our work. I I strongly feel that student affairs administrators must 
take more responsibility for the existence of this thing called institutional betrayal. We must put our bodies on the gears of stopping it whenever we can. And I, I want to also put out a little shout to our professional associations who I think are not, are not free of, of involvement in this question too. I think our mm-hmm. professional associations have a big role to play in helping set our ethics, our norms, our moral compass for our field. And I want to implore everyone to ask and expect more of our professional associations in higher education to be paying attention to the plight of student activists, to be celebrating their commitment, but also to be revisiting why we need them to be doing the work in the first place and maybe revisit some of our conversations about how we can develop more what I like to call institutional courage uh, together and alongside one another with our with our arms linked up. Fantastic. Well, I want to thank both of you for being here. The book is Voices of Campus Sexual Violence Activists, hashtag Me Too and Beyond. The authors are Dr. Ana Martinez Aleman and Dr. Susan Marine. Thank you both for being here, and it's been a pleasure. Thank you so much, Laura. Thanks, Laura. I want to thank Anna and Susan for their time. I thought this was a great interview. I thought this was, the book is excellent. I want to go out there and say it one more time. Make sure you go out there and buy that book. It is a quick read, but a relevant one. And information on how to grab your copy is in the show notes. So thank you. And thank you for being an Office Hour listener. Um, in order to grow our community, please rate, review, and share the podcast within your network. I really appreciate it. And hey, one more time, do not forget the show notes. There you will find more information on both of our guests, how to reach them, how to find them, today's show, and of course, details on how to follow me on social media and become a subscriber to my newsletter on Substack. Thank you to my wonderful producer, David Yaz. Office Hours is a production of the Pod 617 Studios in Westwood, Massachusetts. Now, get get on out out there there and and learn learn something. something.